Her murder shocked the conscience of a city and a nation. This is a child that's been murdered. Tina Fontaine was just 15 years old when her body was pulled from Winnipeg's Red River in August of 2014. Society should be horrified. Just turned 15, she's barely in the city for maybe a little over a month. She's definitely been exploited and taken advantage of and murdered and put into the river in this condition. A young girl who was deeply loved by her family. Tina was somebody special. She never had a bad word for anybody. But profoundly failed by the systems that should have protected her. I think sometimes what we see is systems set up to serve systems as opposed to being set up to serve the children that they need to serve. They weren't doing their job, and if they were doing their job that night, I still might have Tina. Why would they let her go? Many Indigenous families and communities have suffered intergenerational trauma as a direct result of Canada's shameful abuse and neglect of Indigenous peoples. Tina's story is no exception. The public reaction to Tina's murder marked a turning point in a country with a long history of indifference to the staggering number of Indigenous women and girls who have gone missing or have been murdered. This is Betrayed from Penguin Random House Canada. I'm Tina Pitaway, and on this episode, we try to better understand exactly what happened in the summer of 2014 as well as in the months and years that led up to Tina's disappearance. I'm joined by Joanna Jolly, a longtime journalist with the BBC and author of Red River Girl, The Life and Death of Tina Fontaine. In order to understand how Tina found herself so alone on the streets of Winnipeg, Joanna Jolly spent months speaking not only with the police investigating her murder, but also those closest to Tina including Tina's great-aunt, Thelma Favel, whom Tina called Grandma. I've spent quite a lot of time with Thelma over the last three years, and um, every time I see her, we always hug and cry. Um, she says to me, I always make you cry, Joanna, and I think, well, gosh, what, how could you not? Thelma raised Tina and her younger sister, Sarah, following the breakdown of their parents' relationship. Tina was raised about an hour's drive uh, northeast of Winnipeg in a reserve called the Saguin First Nation Reserve. And Tina was brought up actually slightly off reserve by Thelma and Thelma's husband, Joe. Thelma and Joe Favel welcomed Tina and her little sister, Sarah, into their home in 2004. A warm and cozy house. A house that's been called home by more than 60 children over the years that Thelma and Joe have cared for. Tina was five and Sarah was four. From the outside, it doesn't look like much. Um, and you go in and you immediately hit with sort of warmth and love. The walls are absolutely covered with pictures of kids that she's fostered, including many, many pictures of Tina. And the telly's on, the country radio's blaring out in the kitchen. She's there with Joe and family and foster kids are constantly coming in and out of the house. By the time Tina and Sarah had come to live with Joe and Thelma, 
they'd already experienced a lot of upheaval. The girl's father, Eugene, was Thelma's nephew. His early years were spent in Sag King. Eugene's own father was a survivor of Canada's brutal residential school system. He had severe alcoholism and was known to be violent. Eugene left Sag King on his own when he was just 12 years old. He moved to Winnipeg, where he often had to fend for himself on the streets. That's where he met Valentina, Tina and Sarah's birth mother. In January 1999, when Valentina was 17, she gave birth to Tina. Eugene and Valentina's experiences are detailed in a report published in March 2019 by a team of investigators with Manitoba's Advocate for Children and Youth. The Advocate investigates the deaths of children and youth in Manitoba who have, or who should have been, receiving care from public services. The Advocate's Office accessed historical records that provided important details about Eugene and Valentina's involvement with government agencies and the failures of those agencies. The report contains extremely disturbing details of abuse and neglect towards Valentina at the hands of Eugene and others. Valentina declined to participate in the Advocate's report, and because of that, and her lack of agency in being able to represent her own story, I'm leaving most of those details out. When Tina was a year old, and again when she was two and a half, Child and Family Services, the Provincial Welfare Agency, took Tina and Sarah into their care. In November of 2001, Child and Family Services, or CFS as it's commonly called, returned the girls into the care of their father. The Advocate's Report questioned why the agency was so quick to return the girls to an individual who was known to beat and exert coercive control over their mother. Over the next two years, Eugene and the girls moved back and forth between Sag King and Winnipeg. Eugene's struggles with alcohol continued, and life became even more challenging when he was diagnosed with cancer. It's at this point that he asked his aunt Thelma for help. And it looked like at one point that Tina and her little sister Sarah were going to be taken into care. Tina's father stepped in at that point to contact his aunt, Thelma, and to say to her, please, can you take Tina and yourself? Because I I don't really want Tina and Sarah going into care. It had been years since Thelma and Joe had parented children as young as Tina and Sarah. In 2004, Thelma was in her mid-40s. She wasn't sure that she had the stamina to keep up with five-year-old Tina and four-year-old Sarah. But the idea of the girls growing up in the system wore heavily on Thelma and Joe. And they felt very strongly about that. They didn't want Tina and Sarah in care. They felt that that wouldn't be good for the children. They wanted to feel like they were being brought up by family. Thelma and Joe agreed to bring the girls into their home. And while no legal agreement was drawn up, and Eugene was still their legal guardian, Joe and Thelma became informal guardians of the girls. In Indigenous communities, so-called customary care arrangements are commonplace. They're important in helping displaced children maintain ties to their communities and their culture and they allow for the care of an Indigenous child to be taken on by someone who is not the child's parent. Worked out very well. I mean, she loved the children. She and her husband, Joe, adored them. Um, They had a happy home with her. Tina's father, Eugene, was able to visit um, pretty much every weekend and and spend Sunday with the kids, and he bought presents and was a... You know, he he was a factor in Tina's life. She, She didn't have an absent father. She definitely had a father who cared about her, and she knew that. 
Joanna Jolly spoke with Tina's great-aunt, Thelma Favel, several times throughout the course of writing Red River Girl. Tina was somebody special. She never had a bad word for anybody. She was tiny, but she was so protective of everybody that was in her life. In school, like kids that were bullied, she'd take them under her wing and they wouldn't bother those, those kids anymore because they were with Tina. So she must have been quite a strong, like strong she mentor. Was very, yeah, she, she carried out her message strong. As small as she was, she wouldn't back down, but she was not the type to go looking for trouble, but she would help someone that was. In October of 2011, when she was 12 years old, Tina and Sarah's lives were forever changed when Eugene was murdered in a fight with two other men. He died of head injuries, and Thelma had to go and tell Tina and her little sister Sarah at school what had happened, and um, this was an incredibly traumatic moment in Tina's life. And Thelma rec recounts that it was Halloween and the girls had gone to school dressed up as witches, with their faces painted green and their witches' hats on, ready for the party later in the day. And Thelma had to sort of go into school and pull them out and take them to the school, school counsellor's office and, and tell them that their father wasn't going to come home anymore. In the aftermath of her father's murder, Tina became depressed and isolated. His violent death shook Tina's world in a profound way, one that she needed help navigating. But that help, as you'll hear, was elusive. In the months that followed, Tina became less and less engaged in school. She started to experiment with drugs and alcohol for the first time. And there were a few incidents at school involving fighting, which was out of character for Tina. Lori Bone is Thelma's daughter. Did you see a change in Tina in the time? Yeah, a big change. She How was she more change? quiet. She was more to herself, more in her room, just quiet. And I come here every day and I try to, you know, talk to her and try taking her out places and sometimes she'd come but sometimes she'd have her days that she wants to be alone and she used to get over it and when she had problems or she was sad she'd phone me and I'd come pick her up and go for a ride and just talk. Thelma tried to access grief counseling for Tina through the Manitoba Justice Department's Victim Services Program as well as through the school but nothing ever materialized. The Advocates Report describes Tina at this time as having acute mental health needs it underscored that Tina, quote, was never provided with a single counseling session or other cultural healing, despite ongoing assessments and recommendations that this was a critical need in her life, end quote. Adding to the disruption was the sudden reappearance of Tina and Sarah's birth mother, Valentina. Valentina Duck contacted Thelma's home after Eugene's funeral and um, had spoken to Tina on the phone, even though Thelma didn't really know about this and wasn't that happy that this connection had happened without her knowledge and had sort of built up a, a bit of a relationship with Tina by phone. Tina then was quite desperate to go and spend time with her down in the city. It had been 10 years since Valentina had last had any meaningful contact with her daughters and Tina was eager to spend time with her. The two spoke weekly for about two months until Valentina's phone was disconnected and all contact ended. It was another sudden loss. For Tina, all of these losses were overwhelming. Daphne Penrose is the Manitoba advocate for children and youth. 
She was becoming involved in using drugs and alcohol and missing school and getting involved in incidents in the community. Penrose and her office spent years investigating the systemic failures that contributed to Tina's death. Her 115-page report describes in detail how, time after time after time, Tina and her family were let down by multiple services. And not just service from CFS, but services from systems that should have been providing services to Tina in a way that that would have been helpful for her. I think sometimes what we see is systems set up to serve systems as opposed to being set up to serve the children that they need to serve. She was entitled to see a therapist and one was asked for and you know that was never forthcoming for her even though it was talked about a lot and it was asked for and uh, but the list of therapists was never provided and, and consequently she never got any help. In her report, Penrose singled out school suspensions as a particularly bad approach when dealing with at-risk youth. When you see a child who's struggling, it's important that we understand that their behavior is what's talking to us, right? And and they'll show behavior in ways to try to communicate. And, you know, what Tina was trying to communicate was there is, I need some help. And what she really needed was the school to reach out to her and one of the service agencies or a mental health system to say, hey, I, th- I think we have a, a young person who's, who needs some help here and how do, we, how do we come around her and help her and support her through what she's going through? With her cries for help unheeded because of these systemic failures, Tina's problems intensified. She was in and out of school, a combination of suspensions and absenteeism. She was continuing to use drugs and alcohol, and she was communicating with adult men via the internet. On November 1, 2013, when she was 14 years old, Tina ran away from home for the first time. She was located three days later at Valentina's home in Winnipeg. On the advice of what's referred to as Agency 2 in the Advocates Report, the Winnipeg Police Service took Tina from her mother's house. Joe and Thelma would have picked her up immediately, but at that time they didn't have access to a car. Instead of taking her home to Thelma and Joe's, which is where you'd think they would have taken her, the police took Tina to a shelter. She spent two nights at that shelter. The Manitoba Child Advocate referred to this incident as another critical systemic failure. When she got home, Tina didn't talk much with Thelma about why she'd run away or how her visit with her mother had gone. But later that fall, Tina started to ask about visiting her mother again. And she sort of announced to Thelma around her 15th birthday that she wanted to connect with her mother and she wanted to go down to Winnipeg and spend time with her. This was in January of 2014. You know, she begged Thelma and Thelma thought, well, you know, if I make sure she's looked after, hopefully she won't come to any harm. Thelma called Valentina in Winnipeg. One of the things that Thelma needed to know was whether or not CFS was still involved in Valentina's life. Thelma says Valentina told her that she did have a caseworker. And it turned out that Valentina had had other children. Half-siblings to Tina and Sarah, who the girls had never met. Thelma says she asked Valentina for her caseworker's phone number. Thelma had rung Valentina's CFS worker who had reassured them that Valentina was okay, she was in a safe relationship, a good relationship, and she was pretty stable. 
Thelma was also told Valentina was no longer involved in the sex trade, in which she'd worked off and on for years. As well, the CFS worker confirmed that the agency was in the process of returning Valentina's other children to her. So Thelma agreed that Tina and Sarah should be able to go for the weekend. And it was, you know, a controlled short visit and, and they were going to be taken down there by relatives and made sure that the house they were going into was fine. They would be brought home afterwards. And that's exactly what happened. And Tina and Sarah had a great time, apparently. By the time of the visit, what's referred to as CFS Agency 3 had agreed to allow Valentina's two youngest daughters to return to her care. And Tina loved little kids and she loved playing with them and had a fantastic time with her baby sisters when she was there. So the whole first visit was considered to be a big success. And so after she came back, there was the idea that Tina would probably have more visits with her mother. Throughout the winter and spring of 2014, Tina's struggles intensified. She was hospitalized in late January after she cut her forearms with a pen following a family fight. Again, Tina received no counseling or follow-up, either by hospital social workers or through Child and Family Services, whom the hospital hadn't even notified about the incident. Another systemic failure, the children's advocate noted. Three months later, on April 25th, Thelma grew so concerned about Tina's safety that she contacted Agency 2 in Winnipeg to seek help and support. Tina was 15 now and had again run away from home. Thelma suspected she might be in Winnipeg. Thelma was considering placing Tina into care because, according to the advocate's report, she was feeling unable to safely manage Tina's behaviors. She was particularly concerned that Tina was at risk of being sexually exploited by adult men that she was chatting with over the internet. She feared Tina would be lured by one of them. Thelma reached out to Agency 2 because she'd had some dealings with it 10 years earlier, when Eugene was living in Winnipeg. But Agency 2 had closed their files regarding Sarah and Tina nearly 10 years earlier. Thelma resided outside their jurisdiction, so they told Thelma they would forward all of her concerns to the CFS office closer to her home in Sag King, referred to as Agency 5. Agency 5 recognized that there was a customary care agreement that gave Thelma guardianship over Tina and Sarah, but, and this would become even more important in the weeks to come, Agency 2 in Winnipeg didn't. Nor did Agency 3 which was heavily involved in Valentina's life and had overseen the removal of her other children. In their view, Valentina still had a legal guardianship. That made it difficult for Thelma to get clear answers from anyone. Daphne Penrose. There was one agency providing services to grandma, another agency providing services to mom, and because they were treated as very separate families, there came some jurisdictional issues when there was a recognition around who Tina's legal guardian was. The intake worker at Agency 2 who spoke with Thelma that day created a series of documents. These were later reviewed by the Manitoba Child Advocate's Office following Tina's death. The documents detailed a list of actions to be carried out. This included enrolling Tina in a workshop on grief and loss and referring her to a therapist. Now remember, this is two and a half years after her father's murder. Thelma had been working through layers and layers of government services in her attempts to get Tina this kind of help. 
none of the mental health services noted in those documents was ever provided. The actual service that she needed didn't happen. You know, when you are a service that provides support to people, there needs to be some rigor in place to make sure that the supports that people ask for are actually provided and that every effort is made to do that. That didn't happen. The intake documents also included the disturbing indication that Tina was at risk of being sexually exploited by Valentina. There was no information as to how Agency 2 determined that this was a concern, nor was there any indication as to how Agency 2 was planning on dealing with this risk to Tina's safety. This was a critical failure, according to the Child Advocates Report. Agency 2 in Winnipeg forwarded those intake details to Agency 5 in Sag King. Later the same day, Tina was located safe with family in Selkirk, Manitoba. Thelma contacted a caseworker at Agency 5 to let them know. Thelma had a long-standing relationship with this office, having dealt with them many times over the years with regards to other children she and Joe had fostered. An intake worker from Agency 5 met with Thelma and Joe, and on May 6, 2014, they also spoke one-on-one with Tina. In that meeting, the CFS worker never brought up the concerns about internet luring and possible exploitation by her birth mother, a baffling omission. Nobody created a case plan to deal with any of the requests regarding Tina's care. Beyond that May 6th meeting, there's no record of any contact with Thelma or Tina by Agency 5. A few weeks later, when the school year ended, Tina and Sarah made plans for another visit to Winnipeg to see Valentina and their siblings. This is a visit that she never returned from. On June 30th, 2014, Thelma's daughter Samantha and her son Brian arranged to pick up Tina and Sarah to drive them to Winnipeg. But Sarah changed her mind about going. She didn't feel comfortable staying at Valentina's so Tina would be going on her own. She was excited to be on her way. Thelma helped her get her bags into the car and waved goodbye as they drove off. But when Samantha and Brian arrived at Valentina's to drop Tina off, they were surprised to find the house locked up and nobody there. Tina asked to be taken to another place to be dropped off, another relative, which Thelma's daughter agreed to do. They brought Tina to her Aunt Angie's home and dropped her off there. Angie is Valentina's sister. Thelma Favel. She was supposed to be gone for a week. I didn't really think of anything during that week because I gave her a prepaid long-distance phone card and I told her to use it if things weren't going right or if she wanted to come home sooner than the week. But once that week came up and I didn't hear nothing from her, I tried phoning her mom. The phone was disconnected. On July 10th, Thelma received a disturbing message from a young man that Tina had befriended almost as soon as she arrived in Winnipeg. His name was Cody, and he said that he was worried about Tina. He said she'd been using crack cocaine with her mother and that her mother was sexually exploiting her. Thelma contacted Agency 2 in Winnipeg as well as Agency 3, which had oversight of Valentina's file also based in Winnipeg. She outlined all of her fears regarding Tina's safety and asked for help locating her. She also wanted to know if she could place Tina in care once she was located. 
Valentina's worker from Southeast. That's Agency 3. Got a hold of her and said she didn't have Tina. So Thelma started to get worried at that point, and she contacted the police to report her missing. On July 10th, the RCMP put out a missing person report on Tina. Thelma and Joe drove to Winnipeg to try to find her. We went to where Tina was dropped off. Which is where? On Paulson. It's that where her mum was and, living. Yeah, and she was gone. The mother was gone. Every, everything was gone from there. At some point in all of this, though it's not clear precisely when, Tina's sister Sarah showed Thelma a selfie that Tina texted her. In the picture, Tina has a black eye and scratches on her face. The accompanying message said, Look at what our mom did to me. Thelma would later learn that Tina had connected with her mother shortly after she'd been dropped off and stayed with her briefly. But Valentina had started drinking again, had beaten Tina up, and thrown her out of where she was living. At this point, Valentina had also lost custody of the two children that had been returned to her care several months earlier. How many times did you travel down to Winnipeg? Oh, every day. Every day we were there. And were you looking for her on the streets? Or? Everywhere, anywhere we can think of. We went to Polo Park, uh, like the malls and Portage Place, and just everywhere we can think of, we looked. And I had family living in Winnipeg at the time, and they would go out and look also, and I wasn't able to go. Sarah received a second message from Tina. It said, tell Mama and Papa I love them, but I'm not ready to come home yet. And Thelma entered a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare where she went to one service to say, can you help? And they were like, no, you have to go to the other service. And she'd go to the other service, and they'd say, no, you have to go to the other service. And I lost count. And on it went, and she, Thelma was getting more and more frustrated. And I said, so where am I supposed to go now? Daphne Penrose. Manitoba has a very complicated child and family services system. We have many, many agencies that have concurrent jurisdiction across the province of Manitoba. So when there's families that have become separated and there's people caring for parts of the family in this jurisdiction, receiving services from this particular agency and another part of the family that's receiving services from a completely different agency, Confusion and or sometimes uh, jurisdictional issues happen, and, and that's what you see happening here. And all the time, she and her husband were going back down to Winnipeg to look for Tina. On July 17th, Tina was picked up by the Winnipeg police, not in relation to the missing person report, but because they had received a call about a young girl being dragged screaming down Selkirk Avenue in Winnipeg by a man. Police took the man to an adult detox facility, and Tina was taken to a youth detox facility, where she spent several hours. No discharge plan was created, and she wasn't offered any further support. A CFS worker from Agency 3, which had been assigned oversight of her case, met Tina at the detox facility. Tina was checked into a local motel, as no other shelter had room. Again, no planning or support was put in place for Tina's care. Within a few hours, Tina left the motel, and on July 18th, another missing person report for Tina was filed. Throughout this time, Tina did have some contact with relatives in Winnipeg. But nobody could really grab hold of Tina, which was kind of frustrating when you look at it, because actually people knew where Tina was. She was drifting, sofa surfing, sort of drifting between other relatives, relatives of her mother's family and her father's family, who she knew in 
Winnipeg. And I think there was a sort of understanding amongst everyone she was staying with that she'd run away from grandma again. But nobody really sort of scooped her up and forced her to go home. Winnipeg can be a dangerous place, especially if you're Indigenous. Like everywhere else in Canada, systemic racism is deeply entrenched. At the time of Tina's disappearance, Winnipeg had the highest urban population of Indigenous people in North America, concentrated mostly in the North End. Crime and poverty rates in the North End were much higher than in other parts of the city. What I did see was a community or a a city incredibly divided, and that kind of shocked me. Most non-Indigenous residents of Winnipeg had very little contact with the North End. And to me, that was the thing that I found most surprising, was that you had these two worlds living side by side, and there was very, very little interaction between the two, and that you could live an incredibly nice life in Winnipeg, out in the suburbs with your nice house, and you could go skiing, cross-country skiing in the winter, and in the summer you could have your lake house. And you could live all of this and not at all ever interact with, um, with the North End and what was going on in there, or with the Indigenous community, or even understand the deprivations and the poverty and the cycle of violence that they were locked into. And the rest of the city would sort of just skirt, politely skirt by and not really engage. At some point, shortly after arriving in Winnipeg, Tina befriended a young Cree man named Cody Mason. Cody was 18. He was from St. Teresa Point First Nation, a fly-in reserve in northern Manitoba. It was Cody who had contacted Thelma about his concerns with Tina's birth mother. Cody's father had been in a bad car accident and he was in Winnipeg for medical care. Cody was there temporarily to help take care of him. Cody says that after they met, Tina told him she had run away and had nowhere to stay in the city. He offered to let her stay with him and his dad, which she did off and on over the coming weeks. And the two of them went everywhere together. And from all accounts, it seemed to be more of a friendship relationship than a sexual relationship. And basically, Cody protected her. He was always by her side. I mean, he was, she was the feisty, quick-witted one, but he was the solid, silent royal guard, actually, as, as he was described later on. Between them, they were able to navigate the difficult world of the North End. By the beginning of August, Cody's father was well enough to return to St. Teresa Point. On August 6th, Cody flew home. As long as Cody was around, Tina was able to survive the city. She had someone she could rely on, someone she could share this difficult life with, that they could move around together, sofa surfing, finding places to stay, sleeping rough if they had to, but they always had each other. Once Cody left, Tina became incredibly vulnerable. Throughout this period, Tina was reported missing four times. The first time was July 10th, when Thelma received that text from Cody. The second time was on July 18th, when she walked away from the motel that CFS Agency 3 had checked her into after spending a few hours in detox. A third report was filed on July 26th, when she went missing from a homeless youth shelter she'd checked herself into which she returned to briefly before leaving it again on July 30th, when another missing persons report was filed. She remained missing until she was briefly taken to hospital on August 8th. The final missing person report was filed on August 9th by CFS, three days after Cody had flown home. CFS had placed her in another hotel in the city centre, 
At some point, Tina left this hotel. Thelma was unaware that Tina was missing from August 9th onward until August 15th. That day, she called CFS to check in on Tina, only to be told that she'd been missing from their care for a week. Two days later, on August 17th, Tina's body was pulled from the Red River. She had been wrapped in a duvet that was weighed down with rocks. Police estimated she had been in the river for between seven and ten days. Sergeant John O'Donovan of the Winnipeg Police Service spoke with the media. This is a child that's, that's been murdered. Society should be horrified. Just turned 15, she's bar- barely in the city for uh, maybe a little over a month. And, uh, you know, she's definitely been exploited and uh, put into and, and taken advantage of and murdered and put into the river in this condition. And the river washed away most DNA evidence or, or a lot of evidence. And by the time her body was found, it was very, very difficult to tell how she died exactly, and there weren't any obvious injuries. There wasn't any massive blunt force trauma. Sergeant O'Donovan led the investigation into Tina's murder. He was familiar with the North End. That's where he'd started out with the force back in 1992 after arriving in Winnipeg from Ireland. He'd worked extensively there, both in the Major Crimes Unit and in the Homicide Unit. The thing that really shook him was the idea that you could dispose of a girl, a child in a bag, and that it would almost go unremarked on, that that violence against Indigenous women was so high in in Winnipeg, and he'd seen so many examples of it. He he felt really strongly about the, the prevailing narrative that had been that girls like Tina died because they lived a high-risk lifestyle. So it was kind of a victim-blaming narrative. And in that press conference, he was really keen to say she was a child, she was a victim, It doesn't matter what she was doing. She wasn't old enough to have a job at McDonald's. So, you know, you can't blame her for anything that she was doing. She's she's a definite victim. The public reaction to Tina's murder was unprecedented. It moved the long-simmering issue of violence against Indigenous women onto the national stage. Two days after Tina's body was discovered, traffic came to a standstill along Winnipeg's main street, blocked by hundreds of marchers. It was the biggest rally in support of Indigenous people that Winnipeg had ever seen. People from all backgrounds marched together, many carrying signs with names of loved ones whose murders or disappearances had gone unsolved. More than a thousand people gathered at the dock near where Tina's body was found. The investigation had multiple challenges from the outset. A lack of DNA evidence was the biggest obstacle. Tina also didn't carry a cell phone, so there were no records of who she'd been in touch with or where she had physically been. Almost immediately, O'Donovan got in touch with the missing persons unit. They confirmed that CFS had flagged Tina as missing on August 9th. After that, police focused on piecing together her movements on August 8th. What they discovered was shocking. On August 8th, she had not one, not two, but three interactions with police, doctors, and social service professionals. And the biggest kind of omission of people looking after her probably happened when she was picked up by police officers on patrol. 
the police saw her being accosted by a man on the street. He was soliciting. This was 5 o'clock in the morning. The senior officer arrested the driver and his car was impounded. The junior officer was a new recruit with only a few weeks' service on the job. He ran Tina's name through their system. Tina's picture appeared on the computer system along with a previous missing person notice. They arrested the man and took him off to a drunk tank. Well, they they didn't charge him, but they they took him away. But they didn't do anything to Tina. I mean, they realized that she was young, but they, they just let her go and they didn't take her in. The officers testified that they offered to take Tina to the hotel where CFS had rented a room for her. They said that she declined their offer. They weren't doing their job, and if they were that doing their job that night, I still might have Tina. Yeah. Because they wouldn't have let her go. Yeah. If they were doing her, their job, because like you know, who in their right mind would let a fifteen intoxicated girl leave? Like, why would they let her go? And then just to be found an hour later in the back back lane, passed out, and a good Samaritan calling the ambulance. Five hours later, at 9.55 a.m., a security guard at the University of Winnipeg, a known area for sexual exploitation, found Tina unconscious in a parking lot and called 911 for assistance. Closed-circuit cameras captured images of Tina walking into the parking lot alone. It was raining heavily, and you can see Tina with a newspaper over her head to protect herself from the rain, and sitting down, sort of slumping down by the side of a car and passing out. And she is uh, sort of in and out of consciousness, really. I mean, she's, she's, she was quite difficult to rouse. But when they did wake her up, she told them that she had taken some alcohol and some marijuana and some gabbies. And um, she was taken to the ambulance and then off to the children's hospital. Gabbies are the street name for an anti-seizure medication called gabapentin. Tina was taken to the hospital, and after a few hours, she was discharged to the care of a CFS worker named Kim Shute, who had had some contact with Tina in previous weeks. Shute was concerned about how underweight Tina was. At the time of her death, Tina weighed a mere 72 pounds. Shute wanted to get a sense from Tina about how she was spending her time. She decided to take her for a drive to McDonald's to buy her some food and have a chat. In that conversation, Tina mentioned that she wanted a bike. She said to Tina, we can buy you a bike if you just come back to care. And Tina said, no, don't, don't worry about it because my friend Sebastian, he's going to buy me a bike. To which Kim asked, well, who's Sebastian? And Tina said, well, he's a 62-year-old meth addict who I hang out with. And this, of course, alerted red flags in Kim's mind that a 15-year-old girl should be hanging out with a man who's 62-year-old and a meth addict. As disturbing a revelation as that was, Shute's options for intervening were limited. CFS workers can't force youth into facilities, and they have no control over who they associate with. She wasn't really able to do anything much about it. Shute brought Tina to the Best Western Charter House in downtown Winnipeg. At the hotel, a private agency called Complete Care took over responsibility for Tina. The lady working for the company checked her in, and Tina walked out of the hotel a few hours later saying, I don't want to be here, I'm going off to see friends, and nobody could stop her. And that was the last that um, anybody official saw Tina. There were a couple of sightings of her after that, but but that was probably um, one of the last sort of within the last 24 hours of her being alive. 
O'Donovan's team focused their efforts on finding out who Sebastian was. Tips about Tina's movements in the last few days of her life began to filter in, and one in particular stood out. A North End resident contacted police to say he'd spoken with Tina on August 6th, which was two days before she was brought into the hospital. He told detectives that he was outside the halfway house where he lived around 10 o'clock at night when she approached him. Sergeant O'Donovan took Joanna Jolly to that location, where he describes what happened. The Redwood Bridge. There's the Redwood. The Redwood Bridge crosses the Red River in North End, Winnipeg. So she crossed over this bridge, the Redwood. Yes. Redwood Bridge. Yep. The area here is known as Elmwood. Elmwood. Yeah. Now you see the bus shelter here. Yeah. Um, so she stopped at the bus shelter there, and there was a man sitting there having a cigarette. His name was Robert Sango. He's actually an inmate from the halfway house. I think it was shortly before 10 o'clock. He saw she was upset, and he, uh, she came and sat down next to him and asked him for bus money, and he didn't have anything, and he asked her why she was crying. And uh, she told him that some old guy uh, in a house over, over there, she didn't actually say where, but uh, tried to molest her is basically what she said. Tina told Sango this older man had been sexually aggressive with her, she also mentioned something about her bike and a stolen truck. Not far from the bus stop where Sango and Tina were talking, there was a phone booth. When he saw her first, she was at the phone booth. Tina told Sango she just called the police to report something about a stolen truck. Yeah, and she said she just called the cops. Here, the detectives caught a bit of a break. And then we went and checked that phone, and sure enough, she had called the cops. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Um, I like to report a blue truck that was stolen earlier today. Okay, and do you know who stole it? This guy named Sebastian. Is it your truck? What? Is it your truck? No, um, he's my friend and he stole it earlier today. Okay, you need to call the police directly at 986? Yeah. 6222? Yeah. And when you get the recorded message, press 8. That'll take you directly to a person. Okay then. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. She never called back. That call gave the cops something that they didn't have. A lock on Tina's whereabouts on August 8th. A clear time and a place. And it gave them a lead on a potential suspect. The man Tina had called Sebastian. Um, they felt that this Sebastian, whoever he was, would have had a motive to perhaps harm Tina because they'd clearly had a big argument. And they wanted to just track him down to find out what had happened. And so he became a person of interest. Police learned that Sebastian was an alias for Raymond Cormier. And he was at the time a 52-year-old, not, not 62, as Tina said. A homeless man Tina had met a couple of weeks earlier and a man who had had 92 convictions and had spent 20 years um, in and out of jail. On the day that Tina had made that 911 call, the two had argued at a townhouse where Cormier had been staying. Cormier had stolen Tina's bike and sold it to buy a small amount of marijuana. This had infuriated Tina. She knew Cormier had parked a stolen truck at the townhouse, so she walked to the phone booth to make that 911 call and report him. After learning about Cormier, police spoke with Tina's friend Cody. Cody told them that Cormier would sometimes provide them with drugs, including gabapentin, or gabbies, the drug Tina said she'd taken on the day that the paramedics brought her into the hospital. 
Cody also remembered being with Cormier at a townhouse in the Glenwood neighborhood, the area where Tina had made her 911 call, but he couldn't remember exactly where it was. Cormier's whereabouts eluded police for a couple of weeks. Then O'Donovan got word from Milner Ridge Correctional Center, a prison northeast of Winnipeg. An inmate there had information about Cormier that he wanted to share. Ernie DeWolf had met Cormier when they had served time together. DeWolf said he'd seen Cormier with Tina earlier in the summer at a friend's home in Glenwood. DeWolf gave police the exact address. Police went to the house and arrested Cormier on outstanding warrants. They also told him that he was a suspect in the murder of Tina Fontaine. But they had very little evidence to support any kind of an arrest, so Sergeant O'Donovan decided to orchestrate what's known as a Mr. Big sting operation. The idea is that you get some undercover operators who will worm their way into the suspect's life by becoming friends with them and looking after them, befriending them, setting up a sort of relationship with them. And these officers would then tell the suspect that they were part of a criminal gang and the suspect could also join the gang if he wanted and and they would pay him to do little jobs here and there. And as this escalated over time, the friendships grew and and the jobs grew, the suspect would be put into a position where he would come in front of the gang's Mr. Big and the Mr. Big would say to him, hey, look, we hear that you're a suspect in this particular case. Why don't you tell me what is actually going on and I'll look after you and you can be part of this gang. You know, it's, it's best if you tell me. And with that sort of pressure applied, the suspect is then sort of coerced into confessing what they did. This technique has been used apparently very successfully by the RCMP and the Winnipeg police had never really done it before. But Sergeant O'Donovan thought that it would be the right tool to crack open the case. So they wanted to take Raymond Cormier and put him in this position and to see what he would he would confess. And what wound up happening? They put him through a, a, a series of scenarios which did end up with a Mr. Big scenario where he was put in front of the Mr. Big and asked to confess. But right at the last moment, Raymond Cormier, who's quite a smart criminal, realised what was going on and made a run for it. And so they ran after him and captured him. With the Mr. Big sting falling flat, the case the police had built against Cormier faced tough challenges. But they felt that they did have enough to charge him and to go ahead um, with the prosecution. And in December of 2015, the police charged Cormier with the murder of Tina Fontaine. The lack of DNA really was, was the most difficult thing. I think there's a sort of perception now amongst all of us, because we've all watched so much CSI and other detective shows on the TV, that DNA will just seal the case. And juries like DNA, and it makes it a kind of open and shut case. When you have no DNA, it's really, really hard to build a case against somebody, especially when there was no obvious suspect, there was no proper CCTV footage, there were no mobile phone records, and Tina didn't own a mobile phone. So all the normal tools that you would use in a modern investigation just weren't there. The police focused their efforts on the duvet that Tina's murderer had used to cover her body. The pattern was sold exclusively by one retailer, so there weren't that many of them in circulation. Police tried to track down as many of these duvets as possible. And according to some witnesses, Raymond Cormier had this duvet, and he had it because he got it from a discount store called Value Village, where he used to steal bedding from. And a couple of witnesses said that they had seen this in his possession and that they could swear that this was his duvet. But when it came to the court case, this didn't go as well for the prosecution as they'd perhaps hoped. 
partly because the defence argued that when the police went to ask these witnesses if they could identify the duvet, they only showed one picture of the duvet rather than their usual. If they, if they were going to identify a suspect, they'd normally show 10 pictures. There'd be a 10-photo lineup, which is the sort of agreed process by which you would identify a suspect without leading on a witness. But in the case of the duvet, they took just one photo along and the witnesses said, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's the duvet. He had that duvet. But the other thing was that the witnesses themselves weren't great witnesses. The trial began on January 29, 2018, and lasted for three weeks. It ended with a not guilty verdict. On the steps of the courthouse, Manitoba Grand Chief Sheila North Wilson spoke. This is a very difficult and tremendously sad day for, for our people. This is not the outcome anybody wanted. The systems, everything that was involved in Tina's life failed her. We've all failed her. We as a nation need to do better for our young people, all of us. Indigenous people, especially for our young people. This is a message to them that that is probably discouraging, saying that it's okay to kill our Indigenous young people. It is not okay. And it might not be this accused person that took her life, but someone took her life. That fact remains, and we must get to the bottom of it. We must understand why our Indigenous youth are marginalized in this way and stop it and seek to change it. This is not right. This is not the Canada that I want to be a part of. Our young people are precious. They're our future. And if they're not healthy, none of us are healthy. All of us should be ashamed. That sort of summed up the reaction. That was a sort of like, okay, so he didn't do it. Well, who did? In the nearly two years since the not guilty verdict in the Raymond Cormier trial, no new suspects have been charged. The National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls has concluded its work. In its final report, the commissioners of the inquiry referred to the murders and abuse of Indigenous women in Canada as a genocide. Thelma Favel. I just don't understand why it had to take Tina's death to open everybody's eyes, like, that there's a problem out there. Yeah. Especially against Aboriginal people. I just don't understand why it had to take her, her death to open everybody's eyes. My sister-in-law said this. She was sent here for a reason and only just stayed for a while. She was just a messenger from God. What? What? I'm sorry. What? What do you? What would you hope? Not just the government, but society as a whole will do to, to live as one. Yeah. To live as one, like we're all made from one God. 
like we might have different religions and stuff like that, but there's only one God. So that one God made all of us. It's society that decided to separate everybody. But we should just all live in peace and as one. We all bleed the same. Our hearts all beat the, w the same. We're all the same. Do you, do you think there's anything kind of quite, you know, action that could be taken straight away? You, I mean, you talked about the residential schools. This is a long legacy of seeing women, Aboriginal women as different or other and not treating them in the same way as you would treat other Canadians. It's not just Aboriginal women, it's all cultures. Women are just not sacred. It just doesn't matter what culture it is. Women are not seen equal. And they will never be treated equal. What they need to do is have shelters. She had no place to go. They need to open shelters where they're, they can be safe from predators. They need something now, not just writing bunches Bull on paper. In her report, the Manitoba child advocate Daphne Penrose echoed Thelma's call for better services. But she's seen little to no progress in terms of government action. You know, I, I, I sit in front of me right now with another report, um, and that report is Angel's story, and and her death was extremely tragic too, and her life was extremely tragic. And, you know, she is a valued and beautiful young person, and um, she was taken too early too. And I'm, I continue to uh, talk about the issues that impacted Tina, but also the issues that impacted Angel and so many other kids who have, who have uh, died and or right now are living in the middle of addiction and exploitation and have periods of homelessness or missing and um, I, I'm happy that people are talking about it and becoming aware of it. How do we change it for other kids who are living in that situation because we have a lot of kids who are living in that situation right now. We need to make some changes because uh, these children are, are, are beautiful and valued and they deserve better and they deserve better from all of us and from all of us who have the privilege to serve children we all play a role in that um, and as does the public at large I mean um, our legacy of how we treat children in this province has to get better For more on the books featured in this series and to sign up for our newsletter, visit BetrayedPodcast.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Betrayed Podcast. Red River Girl by Joanna Jolly can also be enjoyed as an audiobook. Find it wherever you get your audiobooks. This is the final episode of Betrayed for this season. If you've liked what you've heard, please be sure to give us a rating and leave a review on the podcasting service you subscribe to. 
Betrayed is a production of Penguin Random House Canada. It's written and produced by me, Tina Pitaway, with story editing and sound design by Paolo Pietropalo. Editorial oversight by Bhavna Chohan, Melanie Titino, and Rachel Brown. Special thanks to Kristen Cochran, Robert Wheaton, Beth Lockley, Shannon Poos, Abdi Omer, Christina Chin, and Laura Chapnick. <laughs>